And I just love seeing kids' reactions because that's the priceless moment you you pay for as like a DJ, you know? Like that's the reason why you're there is for the kids. So yeah, I'm very loyal to them. Welcome to Making Conversation with me, Grant Bryden, a podcast about music, creativity, and careers. For this series, I've sat down with a range of artists and creative professionals in order to learn about how their unique experiences and perspectives can help us in our own creative and business practices. For this episode, I spoke to Bay Area DJ Noodles. Born in San Francisco, Noodles learned to DJ from her father using disco and funk vinyl before getting into French electronic music and her native hyphy sound. She moved to Boston to start her career as a stylist with legendary streetwear site Karma Loop before being introduced to Kehlani, who convinced her to take a chance on becoming her DJ in 2015. Since taking the gig and returning to the West Coast, Noodles has established herself as a globally renowned selector, headlined two tours of her own, and played a Las Vegas residency last year. Recorded via FaceTime from Noodles' home in LA, we talk about how she's adapting to the COVID-19 pandemic through live streaming, and shares some insight into how she's become a charismatic and beloved DJ who inspires her audience beyond the music. I mean, firstly, like when kind of lockdown hit, where were you? What were you doing? So I just remembered my, I was, it was the morning after my last DJ gig. I played this party at this hotel in Koreatown in LA called the Line Hotel. And it was like, my first LA party for the year. It was like so random. So many kids came and I just remember waking up the next morning and then they had announced that, oh, we're like literally going on lockdown, start shopping for food. And then like there was like a grace period of four days when people weren't taking it seriously. And then the government, the mayor of LA announced, this is now a lockdown. And I was home and I was just like, oh, fuck, this is serious. Let me go grocery shopping. (laughs) That's pretty much where I was. Yeah, yeah. It seems like you've adapted really quickly, though. How have you kind of developed a routine? So obviously, being a DJ, I'm like always home during the week. It's like my weekends, I'm gone. I'm usually flying out for gigs. So I'm pretty much used to being a homebody. I started my Twitch account last summer. I had DJed this gamer party this group called the 100 thieves during twitchcon and i like these kids were like you got to get into streaming and so i was like okay so i kind of dabbled into it but I, I couldn't fully commit to it because i was always playing shows so finally quarantine gave me that opportunity to sit down and actually set my shit up correctly and like start working on what i want my branding to look like on my twitch account so i kind of just That's how I am whenever I start up like a new platform for noodles is 100% in it. I like commit to it. So that's what I devoted most of my time to. I tapped back into my DJ roots too because I'm not going to lie. I kind of stopped making mixes for my SoundCloud. I didn't really feel like kids were listening to it anymore. And that's pretty much how I got into the routine of being quarantined. was just diving back into music. There's like a work in progress element to it. Like I keep seeing you adding new things and graphics and things like that. Yeah. What was that first like gamer party that you did on Twitch? So the gamer party, it was a physical party. It was at Omnia, this nightclub in San Diego. And it was just like a bunch of gamer kids came and they were all like 20 years old in their early 20s. And I was just so shook at that culture because these kids are making like millions a month and they're so young and all they do is stay in their rooms for eight hours. So I was just like, you know, I started talking to the kids like, how did you guys get into this? Like, what is this realm? I kind of want to get into it because I don't think anyone in music is doing it that well. And so they kind of like schooled me like, yo, you need this setup. We'll like start a group chat with you. And like they were super, super humbling and like excited for me. So I think that gave me the motivation to like really want to tap into the Twitch realm because I've I've always heard of Twitch, but I was never really familiar with the content they put out. And so it's it was a long process. Like I am still learning shit as I go. Obviously, like you said, like my layout's been changing and like I'm discovering new things about my channel, like what kind of content I want to keep pushing, what I don't want to push. And it's really like a trial and error with live streams. You can't really 
fuck up because everyone understands and everyone in the community is so nice. So it's still encouraging, you know. What made you want to do it on live stream rather than like you said, because you could have just done loads of SoundCloud mixes instead of doing it in front of people. Yeah. So like I said, those gamers kind of schooled me on like what kind of community it is when you sign up. And it wasn't the money aspect. Like, obviously, that was a great factor with it. But I kind of really wanted to push Twitch because I felt I'm such a personal person with my followers that I like for them to get a front row visual of like who I am as Micah versus like oh this is noodles you just get like a freaking mix you have no idea who I am what I love about Twitch is like how personal it is with the chat box people then like I said you keep learning shit so I discovered what discord was and discord is like this other sisterhood website where it's like a chat offline when you're not streaming so you get to engage with your followers like while you're not on Twitch and it's like Super cool because everyone's super helpful on it. I've had a lot of followers tell me like what kind of sound cards I should get for like better audio quality. And it's really cool. Like I I love it because it's it's like obviously, yeah, I'm making money with Twitch now too. But at the same time, it's like I'm going to end quarantine knowing that I learned something really cool out of it. You know what I mean? So it's really cool. I really encourage every DJ to do this Twitch live stream over ig live you know ig live it's hard because <laughs> also like literally the role of a dj has like changed overnight yeah how has that affected even like the stuff that you play because obviously you're playing into people's living rooms basically now and how has that changed the way you approach it you know i'm not gonna lie my energy when i dj is like very interesting because I still give off the same energy as if like I'm DJing in person I'm like yelling in the mic still (laughs) or like I think it's a little more calm now that I live stream just because obviously I'm not trying to yell in my living room looking like a crazy person (laughs) but um in a sense of I'm still talking to the crowd the crowd still responds in the chat box everyone comes in it with an open mind and like they just like to have fun in it it's kind of funny there's a lot of kids who get sarcastic like oh yeah I feel like I'm in a club because you're playing this certain song and I just like cannot wait to go out again it gets the kids hype and I think that's what makes live streaming so fun is letting the kids imaginations take over what their reality is so it gives them hope that's kind of the cool part with live streaming I think is it weird to have to judge sort of crowd reactions from a chat when you're used to actually looking at people oh absolutely sometimes I I get reality checks where I sit back and I'm like and I'll like reminisce of the stream I just did and I'm like god have I completely lost it like I'm talking to a laptop with my webcam on top and I'm just like this doesn't obviously feel the same but in a sense it does feel the same because you know you still have kids who are looking forward to your streams a week which is like kids who look forward to your shows and gigs during the week so I think that's the cool part with live streaming as well it's not the official effect that you feel but it's better than nothing I think yeah it's been interesting too because I find like obviously I'm on a different time zone so for me it'll be like when I wake up the next morning I can watch back a stream so it's almost like listening to a radio show Mm -hmm. yeah like the next day it's already happened but you can you can listen back and I feel like you were also experimenting with different sounds and stuff like that that maybe like if it was a radio show you might kind of overthink it over curate it yeah you find that you can kind of be freer on twitch oh yeah absolutely that's the beauty of these live streams is like The kids come in with an open mind. Uh, I set up a schedule, so I stream five days a week now, but Monday, Wednesday, Fridays are like my main stream days. And then Tuesdays and Thursdays, it's like whether I'm available or not, I'll stream later in the day. And I've been playing with my time zones too and like just trying to see like what gets better engagement, what doesn't. But 2 p.m. seems to be working. A lot of kids have been following it religiously. And Mondays are like, since it's the beginning of the week, I do like a chill set. So that's just like chill trappy beat sounds and then like Wednesdays I try to ramp it up a bit and I'll play like R&B stuff and then Friday since it's like the beginning of the weekend that's when I'll do like party rock sets and I'll take requests from kids and I think what's cool about Twitch is like people some people get really into it and like some person paid me like $300 to play like a fucking a Fleetwood Mac song 
dreams. And I, I played it because obviously I surprisingly had it in my Serato. And like they like donated it. And I was just like, I don't do it for that. But like I just think it keeps fans engaged when like you as a DJ is are like talking with them too. It's not just, you know, a bedroom DJ just doing a DJ set. Because I, I think anyone can do that. But I think what sets certain DJs and personalities apart is being able to get a little more personal with the fans. And they love yeah. it. They freaking love it so much. Because yesterday you totally switched it up and just did talking oh, and yeah. hair tutorials and stuff. How was that? Yeah, I I love that. I've been getting a lot of messages on my Discord um, where people are like, oh my God, we love when you do story time during your DJ sets. Like, obviously we appreciate you playing music, but I think you should do a story uh, session for one of your streams so obviously Tuesday is kind of like my one-off days and I was like you know what I've never done this before let me do it and the kids were eating it up they like loved it they loved asking me DJ questions what they can do and I think I think kids especially because I have such a younger fan base they look up to me in a sense that especially because I have like an Asian fan base. So like they're trying to break the norm with their traditional Asian families. They just want to hear it from me. Like, what did I do? And they like love that content. So I love doing it too. Like anytime I can like inspire the youth, I'm so for it. I love, I love the kids. (laughs) Outside of streams as well, how important has like your kind of fitness stuff? I know you've been running, meditate and stuff like that. How has that been? How important has that been? So every morning I run three to four miles. I used to run at least like five to seven miles a day. I kind of cut it down shorter because obviously with the pandemic, I get weird stares when I run. So I kind of just go out for one and a half miles, like a 3.5K, and then I'll just run back home because I just, yeah, people, I've, I've gotten some weird experiences while running I actually like I kind of really stopped running because a group of teenage kids were like yelling Asian slurs at me one time and I was just like oh god this is what our world's coming to so I just kind of fell back with running but like lately I've been running in the mornings three to three to four miles and it's great that's the way I meditate I don't know if people are aware but like running really really works on your breathing habits for your lung capacity so I always try to push my friends whenever they're stressed out like why don't you just go for a run you don't need to go long it gets the blood and adrenaline pumped and then you're ready to take on the day. I find myself super more energetic and positive once I finish a run which makes me want to like stream even more because I'm just like pumped up at that point and yeah that's my those are my workout routines. (laughs) Has there been any kind of rougher times with the quarantine? Have you faced any sort of personal challenges and things like that with being locked in? Luckily, not yet. I think the only thing I struggle with is not physically being able to see my parents and my family. I'm super close to them. So, you know, only living off of FaceTime gets a little frustrating. But I mean, whoa, first world problems. I don't want to complain about that. But Luckily, not yet. I mean, I'm pretty good. I saved a lot of money before going into quarantine. So luckily, my business manager has been telling me like, I'll be good for like the remaining year. But I mean, I'm always looking for outlets to like, not dig myself too far in a hole where I have no way out, you know. But yeah, I've been quarantined with my boyfriend. Luckily, we haven't fought yet. (laughs) Other than that, yeah, I can't really think of any struggles. I think the only thing that makes it very inconvenient is having to go to the grocery store and it being packed. But like, again, first world problems. I shouldn't be complaining about any of that. (laughs) So yeah, luckily not yet. Knock on wood. (laughs) We're hearing like a lot of different reports, but I think LA said that there might not be any more live events this year yeah my agent actually called me and told me about that to give me a warning um that is scary in a sense that obviously it relates to like me and like all my other friends in the music industry and we were advised that really it's not concerts are not going to happen in until fall 2021 and she broke it down she was super made sense with everything you know she started with It starts with the vaccine and then the kids have to get the vaccine. It's going to take a shit long time for anyone to get the vaccine if they ever find one. And then it's like they have to prove that they got the vaccine to go into these venues, clubs, concert venues, like everything. And then it's just going to be such a long process that there's no way 
concerts and nightclubs at least are going to come back if they lift the ban up from this lockdown. So it's scary. It's really scary because, yeah, they they project for 2021 where things will semi get back to normal. But like I personally think it's going to take like three years for but obviously, like, again, it's just my opinion. I'm not speaking facts. I just with the way it's headed in, I just feel like it's going to take a really long time for like a Coachella to happen again, you know, like music festivals. Because if you think about it, I'm going to I'm not going to lie. Like, I don't think anyone was being that clean going out to these venues. You know, you kind of go carelessly and you you don't mind the dirt. But now I feel like with this pandemic, it's shaken up so many people in a sense of they don't want to take chances anymore if life decides to go back to normal. I was listening to Jazzy Jeff's story. So I don't know if you know, but Jazzy Jeff actually tested positive for COVID. And he went on this ski trip and 80% of the town all tested positive for COVID. So Jazzy Jeff was just telling his experience and he was like, you know, I'm not going to lie. Like, even though I beat it, I'm like, I'm fearful every day that like it's going to come back. Like I'm older. My immune system isn't the greatest. He's like, I travel all the time for DJing. And, you know, it kind of just like revamped my entire like idea of being friendly with people. Like, no offense. I don't want to hug people in person anymore. I don't want to give fist bumps or anything. Like I literally am only going to go into DJ and that's it. And that's crazy, you know, because it's like when you go out, You want to interact with people. You want to connect with people. But now, like, that a pandemic like this has happened, people are so scared now. (laughs) Like, I'm scared. (laughs) No, it's crazy. It's crazy when you think of certain things that just were, like, normal a month ago, two months ago. Yeah. That now, when you look at it, like, I saw, I think maybe it was Tyler who tweeted something about, like, how he saw someone cough on TV and it shook him. Do you know, like, it's like that kind of thing. Yeah. It's crazy. It's messed up because it's like, you know, my mom has this dry cough. She always had it when I was younger. And now, like, I fear for her when she goes out grocery shopping because, like, I know people are looking at her crazy. And it's like, fuck, she's not sick. She just has a dry cough. You know what I mean? Like, no one's going to want to hear that. Like, they see what they see. So Yeah, 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 of course. I I find that when I run, I sort of get a bit of a cough. And so I'm running around coughing and people are, like, looking crazy, but it's i'm i'm sure it's fine yeah so taking it taking it way back what was your first memory of music or a song that you felt some sort of connection with my most fondest so obviously my dad taught me how to dj off like disco and funk records so like i think what really shook me was the electronic scene i was so obsessed with this DJ collective uh, from Paris, France. They're called Ed Banger Records. I'm pretty sure you know who they are. Um, but like beyond obsessed with like Justice, the DJ duo. I just loved how their production was so different, but they still stuck in that whole electronic dance phase. And like every song was a banger. And I think D-A-N-C-E was one song that really stuck with me because it just put me in a mood that no other song could make me do you know and even to this day when I hear it it's so nostalgic for me because I remember that period in time when like I had to save money for a laptop and I started downloading a bunch of Justice DJ Meddy and like all these Ed Banger Records people's tracks and I wanted to DJ I wanted to be in their collective and I was just like only 16 at the time and I think that was the moment when I really realized that I fucking appreciated electronic music, even to this day, love them. <laughs> yeah. So your dad, DJ Mobile Disco 2000. Mm-hmm. Which is crazy when- because there's like a freaking DJ duo called uh, Simeon Mobile Disco. And like I, when my dad told me that, I was like, wait, is this like a coincidence? Anyway, sorry, go ahead. That, that name sounds like something that someone would sort of like a meme dj a meme account or something would be called doesn't it now absolutely i clown my dad till this day and like he was an immigrant moving to the states so obviously to him back then he was probably like oh i got the sickest dj name like let me you know but he was definitely ahead of his time with that name i think way ahead of it he probably thought the world was gonna end in 2000 so (laughs) um yeah great name love my dad so with that what 
what was it that made you want to to learn from him and was it just you who learned or did your brother learn as well um no it was just me my brother is a skateboarder so he stayed in that realm my sister was more of a she, uh, most of my music taste adapts from my sister so she was into music she just never wanted to dj it but what made me want to get into it like i said i was 16 and i was going to nightclubs with a fake id and i think what i was I say this in most interviews, but like I was super fascinated with the nightlife scene because I just loved how the DJs controlled the room. I wanted that was something I just always wanted to tap into. Obviously, I knew my dad DJed in the 80s, like till now. And I basically just asked him like, hey, I sat behind his turntables. I was like, can you like just teach me the bare minimum of how to properly mix? And he was like, oh, absolutely. And like he pulled out his crate records and we were just flipping back and forth through the records. And he was like, you want to make sure you want to get tracks that have the same beat so it's easy to mix in. Or if you want to switch up the BPM, you literally have to scratch into it. So I'm going to teach you how to do the ropes with this shit. And it's great. Taught me how to beat count. Taught me the basic necessities with scratching. And it was super great because like I wasn't always close to my dad growing up but I think that moment solidified that I was a daddy's girl because like I really really was looking forward to my sessions with my dad back then and he was great he was a great teacher I love him (laughs) yeah did it ever get stressful learning from your dad oh yeah like I said my dad was an immigrant so his English is not good and I don't mean to clown him but like it was obviously I'm like in my adolescent years so I'm like hurry up, like, what do you, like, what's next? I can't really understand you, but those, those are the only times I ever got frustrated with him. Now his English is so much better, and we just laugh about it, but, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm really glad he taught me how to DJ versus, like, me learning on YouTube. I mean, I still YouTube certain scratches that I want to learn and take down, but other than that, I just, it just, like, really means more a lot that it came from my dad. So was it funk and stuff that you were learning to DJ with yeah yeah and disco records and and all that he was more of like that type of DJ in the 80s obviously because those were the only music scenes that were in at, during the nightclub scenes but I tried to like get him on hip-hop beats he was just like I don't like this <laughs> he's like this is too fast <laughs> I'm like wait what disco records are so much faster and he's just like I don't know I just don't like it they cuss a lot <laughs> so yeah did you appreciate his music oh absolutely I am thankful every day that I learned off that genre of music just because I can talk to people for days about it and people are always so shook because I'm like I'm cool with the OG DJs like and like when they ask me what kind of records he taught me and I just go in they're just like wow you're so young like how do you know this and I'm just like my dad (laughs) that's it (laughs) my dad what are some examples of those records just like like anything from like Tina Turner, like Earth, Wind and Fire and um, just like super like classical record disco records. And, you know, it's just not what the kids are playing these days. Like they play rap shit and they want to hear Lil Uzi Vert. But then sometimes I'll end my set with like Celine Dion and I don't give a shit because it's funny. And people are just like. This is great. It works. <laughs> yeah. A lot of a lot of DJs of like this generation don't obviously have to deal with vinyl and learn yeah. from that. They can skip that kind of technology. Are you pleased that you learned from that? Yeah. Um I'm super glad I learned off of vinyl. It there's nothing no feeling actually compares to like finding the record you've been looking for at a record shop. But I mean, obviously life is like so in the future now that I'm so grateful for laptops and people are always like are you ever going to transition to record box which is the USB shit and I'm just like no I'm not like that I need to see my laptop because I don't like scrolling on the CDJs I like typing for the song and what's cool about Serato is like you're able to download a track while you're still on the program so like say someone requests something and you're like oh fuck I don't have that like let me download it real quick it's cool like, I like having my laptop. It's very convenient. Yeah, yeah. So after learning first, how did you sort of start transferring kind of your musical taste and the stuff you were listening to into this kind of DJ 
hobby that you had. You're getting into the Ed Banger stuff. Did you buy that on vinyl and then DJ with it like that? Or oh, no. So luckily, like Serato came out a little after, like a like my college year. So I learned how to DJ when I was 16. So I was doing vinyl for a couple of years, but Serato came out in like 2000. Ugh, forget. But no, I didn't buy vinyl for Ed Banger Records. I I have vinyl records by them just to have as like collectibles and like to hang on my walls and stuff. But no, for the most part, I was pretty much just like ripping tracks off YouTube and like yeah. playing the tracks that way because I wasn't trying to pay money on iTunes. Um, but now we're so lucky we have DJ pools and shit where like you can download shit for free if you pay a monthly subscription. So yeah, yeah. So did you? Did you ever play any gigs with vinyl? Um, or was that too early on? I've I've done like I've done a couple. It wasn't like official gigs. They were just like family functions. I mean, gigs. I guess you mean like paid gigs. But no, I never actually did a vinyl set. Um, I don't really have my records anymore. They're at my parents' house somewhere in storage. But no, actually, that sounds really fun to do. <laughs> so, how did you transition into Serato? I basically, so my dad had no idea how to use the laptop. So I kind of had to teach myself in that sense. That's when I started YouTubing how to do it. But I I basically got my first job at American Apparel. And I just remember my first paycheck. It was like $400. I like saved, I think like three of them. And I was like, I'm going to buy a laptop. And then I asked my friend who was a DJ in San Francisco the, uh, who used to DJ as a resident at one of the clubs I used to go to and I was just like hey can you teach me this program because I don't understand any of this I I only know vinyl and so he was just like oh absolutely like just get Serato download it on your laptop and then come to me and then I'll teach you how to use it on like the decks and I was like all right cool so I didn't know you needed like back then you needed a Serato box. It's like a sound card basically where you plug into your laptop. So then I was like, oh, fuck, I got to save money again for like this Serato box. That back then was like $800. So I was like, oh, fuck. So finally saved it up. My friend was teaching me in the ropes of it. And then finally I was able to get all my equipment together. And then I figured out how to sync them with my dad's Technic turntables and I was like, oh, sick. I don't need to buy any turntables, so I don't need to save up money for that. So, yeah, I was DJing on a cheap-ass Newmark mixer. It was very, God, it's, like, worth, like, two, 200 bucks these days. But um, I plugged in my Serato box, and then I just started practicing tracks on it, like, tracks I wanted to play, you know, versus just being stuck on these disco records. Yeah. And what tracks were those at that time? Was that the kind of justice and stuff? Yeah, that was the Justice, like, um, laid back Luke. It was the Bloghouse era where, um, like, A-Track, Duck Sauce, all that shit. <laughs> and did you ever play any shows in that era, even, like, college shows and things like that? No. Um, I did play my college Halloween party one year, and that was kind of, like, the debut of Noodles. <laughs> it was really cute. My college didn't pay me, obviously. I kind of just wanted to do it just to get, like, content to put out. I dressed up as Sailor Moon for Halloween and I was just DJing and it was so cute. Everyone was dancing. And then I was like 18 when I did that. It was my first year of college. And then the following year, I was 19 in my second year. So I went to design school. It was only like a two and a half year program and I was able to get my bachelor's through that. But um, that's when I met Reggie Sylvester. I met Paulo Wallo um, and David Ali, who's my manager now. And basically Reggie and Paulo had asked me to DJ Reggie's in-star party. So I'm like 19. I have no idea. I'm just like, oh, cool. Streetwear now? Like, this is different. And I was just always into blogging. I was fashion blogging at the time, too. So I, as you can see, I was just a content creator all my entire life. I don't know yeah. what is wrong with me. But um, I was just always blogging my fashion outlets. So that's how Reggie and Paulo heard of me. So they messaged me on my Tumblr and were like, hey, uh, we've been listening to your mixes you've been putting out on Tumblr. Do you want to DJ our in-store? So I was like, okay, fuck it. Like a new scene, I'm down. And then that's when I got tapped into the streetwear scene. I was like 19. Reggie did this collab with this streetwear store called Purist and SF. And I just remember 
then I was playing all this hyphy rap shit. Like I was expanding my library at that point from like electronic transitioning into hip hop and rap. So it caught David's attention and he was just like, wow, does anyone manage you? Because I'm trying to work with you. And I was just like, uh, I don't. I don't know about that. I'm kind of going to design school for fashion design and I kind of want to focus on that. And he was like, well, I throw parties in San Francisco. If you ever want to DJ, let me know. And then I was like, I'm only 19. I don't know if these clubs will let me DJ. And so David was like, don't worry about that. I think you're a dope DJ. And then that's pretty much how I got my foot in the door with nightlife was David Ali plugged me in to DJ his parties for like 200 bucks so now I'm like oh fuck you can make money off this shit okay cool so I can DJ on the side and I can go to school during the week and David really put me on with that it's great and then obviously you went to Karma Loop right in Boston yeah so then I graduated college so I had met David and Reggie in my last year of college and I graduated and then Karma Loop asked me to work with them in Boston so I was only 20 at this time and I was just like Never lived out of my mom's home. Um, I moved in like 24 hours. They gave me my first salary paid job. So now my parents are like, oh my God, your 401k is going to be set up. You're going to be great. Finally, you're, you can pay your tuition off. And I was just like, all right, cool. And then I moved to Boston. And then that's when I really, really started getting into streetwear. Like I started understanding like Japanese brands. Like um, I made so many good friends with like, there was like a sub store that Karma Loop owned. It was called Boylston Company. And it was just like all this high end streetwear that I never knew about. Like it had like Fizvum and shit that they were selling. And I was just like, what is this? Why are all the guys so hot? Oh my God, I love it. I want to be in it. And then, yeah, that's when I pretty much stuck with the hip hop realm. Anytime I DJed in Boston. That's when like trap was becoming a really, really big genre. Like Futures DS2 like had just dropped and I was just like, all right, this is it. Like, (laughs) but yeah, it was great. What was the scene like in Boston at that time? So East Coast and West Coast is completely different when it comes to like hip hop scenes. I feel like the West Coast has this sound where it's just like a YG sound where the beat just knocks, you know. And then out there, it was more lyrical based, I felt like. Like I got into so many East Coast rappers like Joey Badass and all that. And I feel like their music scene was like they cared about it so much in Boston. Like there's so many colleges in Boston that revolve with like all your Ivy League schools. But then they also have like Berkeley, the music school. And it's like the music school if you're going to go to school for music. And I felt like we were so spoiled in Boston because there was always a relevant concert going on every single week during the week. And I thought that was great to experience because I was going out all the time with my coworkers. We were going to bars and like, A lot of like EDM DJs and like rappers would always host after parties at these nightclubs. And it was just like so cool. It was great. I really loved the scene out in Boston. I miss it. I haven't been back in years. Were there the local rappers like kind of Michael Christmas and Cousin Stiz and stuff out at that time? Yeah, they were out. Um, Karma Loop actually had did this college tour series where Kendrick Lamar and Cousin Stiz were on it one year. And it was really cool because... You know, like the local rappers from Boston, like they're so chill. You would see them at a party and they were just so easy to approach, which that was so foreign to me because I'm over here like, oh, my God, like we all listen to your mixtapes in the like studio room and shit. And it, it was like really, really cool how laid back East Coast rappers were and shit. It was great. Karma Loop was obviously huge then as well. And it was like the oh kind of go to even for here. It was like the place you would go to for streetwear how was it working at that company and getting your kind of education there as it were oh my god it was the best experience i am so glad i worked for them till this day i'm still really cool with greg selko who was ceo of it like i just think that i learned so much at such a young age there and it was like definitely a scene i really wanted to get more educated on and I just really loved how laid back it was like anytime because obviously everyone knew how young I was. They would let me go home once a month to go see my family. So like with like a paid leave, they were so chill on our scheduling. I will never forget that. And 
me and my friend Jenna, who was a buyer there, we used to go to Miami like religiously because it was only like a three hour flight from Boston. And I just really miss it because everyone was super close. It wasn't one of those like on edge companies where you had to walk on eggshells around people like everyone was always talking about like partying. Where are we going to go for brunch on Sunday? It was just a very family established group of friends and it was great. It was super great. Is there certain skills and stuff that you picked up then that still transfer into what you do now? Not really. I was the head stylist in the styling department. And basically, I think the only thing that was very foreign to me was I never had interns in my entire life until I got that job. So like they kind of piled on me like four interns. So I wasn't and they these kids were older than me. So like they always looked at me sideways, but I always knew like I deserved to be there. So like It kind of really made me grow up really quick because I had to play the bitch role, but at the same time, I had to always be the cool boss at the same time. I think DJing-wise, I didn't really bring on any skill sets, but like how to properly dress myself for certain occasions, I think. Like, Like I get booked to do like hella random corporate gigs. I just need, yeah, just knowing what to wear properly. (laughs) And during that time was when you first connected with Kehlani, right? How yeah. did that happen? So my last year, so I worked at Carmelite for two years. It was my last year when I was 22. We had met on the phone. So I was still keeping in contact with David. And Kaylani was looking for a DJ at the time. And she had tweeted it on Twitter and was like, um, at me your favorite DJs. And I was still making like mixes that would go viral on my Tumblr. And someone was like, oh nudes and then all of a sudden once that person said it someone was like dj noodles like noodles and then all of a sudden it just piled up on her app mentions and kaylani was like oh my god wait i actually know who that girl is like i've seen her tumblr before i've i've heard her mixtapes so david was like oh yeah like if that's someone you want to meet like i do a lot of uh bookings with her and so Kay was like yeah can you link us so one day David called me while I was in Boston and he was like hey how are you and I was like oh I'm great I thought we were just gonna catch up and he was like there's this girl on the other line I'm gonna merge the call but I kind of just want to let you know like you know just hear her story out she kind of is interested in you being her DJ so in my head I'm in Boston like oh I don't even know if this is something I want to do I'm still trying to figure out my life and so he merged the call I met the girl and then she just told me her story and I was just like so blown away with this this little girl. She was so much younger than me and she was like, I think she was like 18 when we were on the phone and she told me her whole life story and I, I just admired it so much because she gives me this go-getter independent girl vibe because she had to grow up at 14 and I was like, I love that and so... She basically was just like, give me a year and I feel like our lives will change. So I was like, all right, cool. She was really right because then she signed to Atlantic and then she got asked to go on tour with G-Eazy. And I think that was the tour that was very groundbreaking for her career. And also my career because I was meeting so many club promoters and stuff on the road. And it worked in our favor. And then we finally started getting money and it was great. It was super great. Yeah. I know like on that G-Eazy tour, you've said that you earned like $50 a show or whatever. Yeah. How do you, yeah. at that point when you had that kind of streetwear path that you were on, that you were doing well in, how did you know to kind of trust taking this really um, low pay and tour on? Well, so um, that same year, no, the year before Carmelib went down. So I actually got laid off and I was jobless. And so that's when I migrated back west and I was working for a PR agency in LA. I was getting paid really well as like two and it was still freelance. So I wasn't like devoted to like this company. And David was like, you know, I'm not going to lie. You might have to quit because like we're going to be on the road for three months. And I was just like, hmm. David was like, it's going to be really worth it. Like, I think you should really do it. Like, I believe in our vision. And so obviously one of your close friends, when they tell you that you want to believe them. So obvious, I'm like going back and forth like, oh, I don't know. I have my 401k set up. I don't really want to like go through this. And I don't know how the fuck he talked me into it. But he was just like, listen, like so many people would want this position. Like you want to do this. And I was like, all right, 
Yeah, you're right. So he talked me into it. I'm a super naive and vulnerable person, too. So, like, if you can really convince me, clearly, if, like, Kehlani over here talking me into, like, give me a year, I'm like, huh. But David was like, just do it. So I was like, okay, you know, David's never failed me once. Why would he fail me now? And it was great. Then, like, even though I was getting 50 bucks a show, I was still getting booked for after parties. So, like, we were reeling in cash, like, all night. And it was so fun because then, like, we would party with like G-Eazy and I'm really glad we started with that tour because touring with boys is ridiculous in a sense of like obviously they live that YOLO life us girls are like I just want to be at the hotel wearing a face mask like I'm not trying to be out with you know all these people but um it just really tested my patience too with like what I was going to put up with what I wasn't going to put up with and everything played out great I ended the tour with that and I learned so much from that one tour that when Kehlani dropped her biggest mixtape, the Grammy-nominated one for You Should Be Here, we were all pros at touring. Like, we knew what time to be in the tour bus by. And it was freaking easy. And then finally, I was getting paid very, very good on that tour. And everything just made sense. And I'm just really glad I didn't take any shortcuts because I think about it all the time, especially now being indoors. I just like to go through my camera roll and I'm just like, oh, that was such a good time. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Do you think the fact that it was with a bear artist as well was was good to kind of see the level that you and her could kind of go to based on what he was doing? Mm-hmm, absolutely. I think it made a big difference versus me DJing for another artist from um, another city. Um, I've been approached by other artist and I I always looked into it but I'm just like no if I'm gonna DJ for one artist I'm gonna stick with just that one artist because I don't want to spread myself too thin you know like Uzi was looking for a DJ and I just remember I was texting him about it and then I was like do I want to go down that rapper DJ realm like I don't know like I feel like me and Kehlani have such a good connection on stage and yeah I I'm really glad I just committed to her I think the only person I would ever DJ for would be Rihanna, but she definitely doesn't need a DJ. <laughs> yeah. How do you, when, you, when you're in a role like that and you're tied so closely to an artist who's really successful and taken off, how do you make sure that you remain an artist in your own right and you remain a brand that people know? I feel like Kehlani was really good at letting me have my creative freedom like that. She always told me too, like, you know, you're considered an artist, so you should really stick down your noodles route. I'm very particular. So like when promoters would book me, I would make sure like Kehlani's DJ in parentheses wouldn't be on the flyers. No, no shade. It's just more of that's the branding that I was going for. Like my socials too, like if you know, you know, is kind of like what I go off of. Like, I don't need to have Kehlani's DJ in my bio. And also, I just kind of like stuck to my roots as noodles. Like, I made sure that like when I went down this DJ realm, I was still going to post like outfit pics. I was still going to put out mixtapes. And I was still going to remain this like girl that like I put myself on the internet to be, you know. And yeah, just having the support from Kehlani really gave me the push that I needed to do so I can just push noodles and it paid off because then I was able to do my own headlining tour as noodles with like actual noodles fans you know how do you prepare for a Kehlani show versus a noodles show a Kehlani show is premeditated so like we do rehearsals for like two to three weeks before the tour kicks off so we rent out a warehouse space like an SIR or like a studio space and we just run through the set like so much during the day and I think that's what's cool about a Kehlani show is like it's a set routine every night but then like me opening up as her DJ I'm always playing a different set in every city so it's different because I'm actually doing work for a noodle set <laughs> versus Kehlani it's kind of like I'm not saying I'm not doing work because like I actually control when the track starts when it stops and like yeah that seems like such an easy job but when you're like in front of freaking thousands of people, it can like get a little scary with the pressure. And yeah, it's like I said, it's just premeditated versus a noodle show. I kind of just go off a crowd's reaction. Do you prepare sort of different sets in, in different cities and do you kind of give nods to the different artists from those places and stuff? Absolutely. I'm 
super grateful for David for that because David, it's really hard to keep up with like the latest, but David is so like, he has like a music library in his head like, oh, make sure like when you go out, you play this t- this artist, drop this specific song. But like, he wouldn't do it all the time. Like I'd always have to like research it or like sometimes fans would tweet me like, oh, I'm excited for this Atlanta show. Make sure you drop some like yin yang twins or something. I don't know, like something I would go off like, Sometimes I would tweet and be like, hey, we're on the way to, I don't know, like Denver. What what song should I play tonight? And like so many kids would respond to it. And then I'd be like, OK, if the song was cool, I would play it, even though if I was unfamiliar with it, you know. But yeah, most of the nights it was usually a different set. Is that harder when you're going out into Europe to do and, yeah. and places that aren't U- U.S. basically? Yeah. So like London is probably my favorite crowd, number one over any other city. I think Europe's sound is way more open-minded versus the fucking states. You know, the states loves that aggressive shit. I feel like you can get away with playing some type of electro stuff for like European crowds just because people just like just dance. I feel like they don't need to know the song in Europe and they just as long as it keeps their body moving, everyone's just in a good mood. And I think that's the difference between the states and going overseas is like Asia when we played Japan you know these people don't understand the lyrics we're saying if you stare at Kehlani fans in the crowd they're just they're dancing to like the melody of this song like they don't even know what she's saying so like I think that's the uh culture culture difference is when you go overseas, they're really listening to like the melodic tone versus what the artist is actually saying. But like, you know, and then like there are some people overseas who like really dive into that and they they understand. But I love playing in Asia and Europe. Like it's so fun. It's so fun. <laughs> Have you connected to the music in London? Because I noticed on your stream you play some London, some UK yeah. music and stuff. I play a lot of Deep House now. I just love it because the songs are so long and they're so easy to mix into. I also love the scene because when I was in London, I was, uh, my friend, we did an in-store and my friend gave me acid and then he took me to an underground rave. I don't even know where in London he took me. And like, I just remembered, I was like, I need this in the States because I love to turn up. So like, I, I was just like, so blown away by like a song that was playing for 12 minutes and I'm like I fucking love this shit and like it was like oh god I just love the London music scene it's everyone's just in a party mood everyone's super happy it's not like in the states there are fucking fights that go on after nightclubs for no reason because people don't know how to handle their liquor but in London it's just like everyone's just looking to party so yeah when when you moved back to LA I read that you connected to the beat scene there through low end theory and I mm-hmm. wonder what was that experience like so my boyfriend's a um a beat head I've been with him for like about six years now he uh DJs and produces under Mr. Carmack and he's like super into that beat shit which is why I don't think I would ever get into production because dating a musician like him like I just respect it so much more but he's actually the one who introduced me to like selection low end theory and Team Supreme and like all these beat collectives and I think what was really cool getting into it was like it was so different like some of the sounds I couldn't even believe what I was hearing through like the PK systems and I was just like what the fuck are we listening to and then Aaron would be like no you just gotta listen to like (laughs) and I'd be like what like I don't understand there's like nothing to like correlate to and then I started to understand it the more I saw Aaron's production skills kick into place. And then I was just like, oh, like, it's not to be understood. It's to be like, you know, like connected to it somehow. And then you fall in love with the beat scene because you're just like, these people are making like the craziest sound sampling shit that they just made from like their kitchens and stuff. And you're just like, oh, like, this is tight. Like, this is creativity. Yeah, I I really respect Daddy Kev and like Gaslamp Killer and all of them for like putting on Low End Theory. I was really devastated when it ended because like we used to go religiously like every week. And it was the best weekly party because you always got a different sound every week. And then it made you want to go on your laptop and search the sound clouds of the DJs who were playing. And the cool thing about Low End Theory is 
every artist that plays only has 30 minutes to kill their set. Like, that means you better be playing, like, really good shit, you know? And it was a legendary party. Obviously, a lot of the mixes and stuff that you're doing, you're not playing the kind of, like, original version of the tune. You're playing, like, the flips and edits. What is it that attracts mm-hmm. you to sort of dig and find those versions? Mostly because I just... I like going towards remix and edits because I like throwing shine on producers that don't really get the plays that like I feel like they deserve. Like I'm not just playing it just because I feel like playing it. I play them because I actually like the beat that they made with it. And then they just like smack these lyrics and vocals on top of it, you know. But I feel like when I'm in the SoundCloud hole, I kind of just go down the rabbit hole and I'm not particularly looking for a certain sound. I kind of just like to keep an open mind. Like sometimes I'll hear EDM edits of like Kehlani's song and I'm like, ew. But then like sometimes I'm like, wait, I should download this for like when I play Japan because they love EDM. So like. That's kind of like, I try to keep an open mind. Like, if I played this track, like, where would I see myself playing this? Oh, let me just throw it in, like, a specific crate on Serato and make sure I have it just in case I need to, like, reference back to it, you know? So that's how, like, my digging process goes. Yeah. And how organized do you keep all of the music that you collect? I'm pretty organized. Uh, I have, like, crates, and then I have sub-crates under it, and then I'll break it down from BPMs, or I'll go from you know, like peaking hours when to play the like specific tracks. Like especially I have this crate titled Vegas because I had a Vegas residency last year and it just has like 800 to 1,000 songs in it where I can just like, and it's all organized, like play this during the peaking hour and it's like all the bangers and it's it's my most prized possession crate because, <laughs> you know, you only play 10 seconds of a fucking banger and then you mix to the next song. So it's like, even though it's like a thousand songs in one crate, it's like, how many songs can I actually play in that one hour? And so when you go to a show because you've got your laptop, do you have all of your music kind of ready to go? Or do you have to choose certain hard drives and sort of prepare like that? A little bit of both. I've done premeditated sets where I've well, a majority of my sets are usually premeditated, but it doesn't always come out 100% of how I wanted it to be because, like, sometimes I'll think of a song on the spot and then that's when, like, I'll type it in in the search engine and then I'll play it. But for the most part, I have, like, a base playlist of what I want to play, but it doesn't always 100% go that way. Like, my selection experience was, like, I had, like, a whole set I wanted to play and then once I went after J-Rob, I was just, like, oh my God, he fucking killed it. And I was like, oh, I need to like step my playlist up. So then I was kind of like freestyling it as I was going. And like, I surprisingly did really good that night. So it just really depends on how a crowd like receives certain shit. Like if if I have like a set and like they're not feeling it, I'll scrap the whole shit and I'll be like, fuck it. I'm going to jump BPMs, figure it out. <laughs> I saw something where you said that you turn up beforehand and kind of gauge what's being played and stuff. How important do you Mm -hmm. think that is? Because I feel like often people just arrive for their set time and play half the same set that was just played. Hell no. I always go early to the set. I always try to catch the openers just because I like to see what other people are playing. I also like to see the crowd's reaction. Like, oh, what am I going to deal with by the time I get on? I mentioned yesterday on my Twitch stream that I love going into the crowd and just like listening it to the sound from the crowd and like just seeing fans engage and like I like to go up to random people and just be like hey like who are you excited to see and if people don't know who I am I'm just like sick like make sure you stay for noodles and they'll be like oh yeah like we're so excited and it's just it's so fun and I just love seeing kids reactions because that's the priceless moment you you pay for as like a DJ you know like that's the reason why you're there is for the kids so yeah. I'm very loyal to them. (laughs) And you put a lot of personality across in your sets and you get on the mic and stuff. Was that something that just came natural to you? Hell no. I was so nervous. I used to be those heads down DJs, like don't look at the crowd at all because I would be so insecure. Like, oh my God, if they didn't like my set, I would just be in a shithole. But then David kind of like built my confidence up by saying, you know, we have a ritual whenever I perform and when I'm nervous, he'll like stop me and he'll be like, listen, a million kids would pay to be in your position. So like, I suggest you like get on there and own the stage because like, 
literally, do you want to come back to the city and make money? And I'd be like, yeah, you're right. And then he'd be like, then get on the stage and tell them who you are because you are a fucking cool DJ and you deserve to be here. And like that just would get me pumped because like it would be a reality check for myself. Like, yeah, why am I nervous? Like, this is what I do. This is what kids come to see, you know, and it's true. Like even till today, I still get nervous for sets because, you know, anything can happen. Like. I did a selection warehouse set and like a kid fainted in the front row and it killed my entire set, which is fine because like it was my choice. I wanted to stop my set and make sure that person properly got escorted out and got the help on the wheelchair, you know, uh, versus like, oh, I'm so like into myself. I'd rather just kill this set. I don't care about that kid. Like, no, like I said, like I am so for the people like I serve the people. <laughs> but yeah. At what point did you decide that you needed a manager I knew I needed a manager as soon as I got after party bookings because I needed someone to filter in who was being legit with these bookings and who was just trying to make like get in contact with me because I've had like fans spam my like my noodles email and be like hey we want to book noodles but then really it was like it would be like a fraud booking. So I needed someone like David to be straight up with the people like, we need a deposit now. And then like, she'll come and perform. Cause like, we're not doing this. We make whatever we make at the door. Like it, I just needed someone to like guarantee like shit I was playing was legit. And then it led to getting an agent. And then it led to getting a business manager. Like he just really structured my DJ career that like, I didn't know I needed. And like, I think that's when I realized I needed David. I needed a manager. <laughs> What's the most important thing that you think you've learned from him? The most important thing I learned from David was making sure I stay true to myself. This man, he does like 72,000 things a day, but he still makes sure that like he prioritizes what David wants to do when he wants to do it. He also is super, he doesn't forget his roots. Like I always see him being thankful for like, people who helped him in his early career days and he just also taught me my confidence as an artist he he's just such a positive soul and he always tells me like you know you just gotta like think of the better days even though when shit gets rocky like and he calls me daily just to make sure like I'm fine and like he'll just always tell me like it's gonna be better don't worry and I think that's like really hard to do. It's exhausting to try to stay positive every day, you know, but he's really good at that. So yeah, I learned that from him. What's the most important thing you've learned from Kehlani? Kehlani, oh, she is a gem. She's just like a spiritual guidance counselor. <laughs> like, uh, Even though she's younger, she's just taught me like to accept myself the way I am because you like, this is who you were born to be. And she just always tells me to push the culture forward. And I think that's important for most artists to, like, do, you know. And it's exhausting when people are watching you all the time. So, like, she always tells me, like, if you want to do it, like, you just need to do it. And so I think that's really important, being an individual in America. is like, <laughs> it's so hard to survive out here. <laughs> people are always so, like, caught up in the wrong things. And, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Do you think that there's challenges that you faced as a female DJ that your male peers don't necessarily have to deal with? Um, not anymore. I think I've been earning my stripes as I've gone. In the beginning, a lot of people used to doubt me in the music scene at least. Like, I won't name names, but like I just remember with Vegas, I was like 22 trying to get booked for light this nightclub light at Mandalay Bay and one of our homies did the bookings and we were trying to like get into the music scene but then like I think I needed the tough love because he was a homie too he was just like I just don't think noodles is ready for this and I was just like it hurt to hear that but I was like you know what maybe he's right because like not a lot of female DJs DJ in Vegas like that so I was like okay let me just work on my craft and then maybe when I'm ready it'll come and then all of a sudden last summer I had a four-month residency at One Oak and Jewel nightclub so I was like See, it pays off. Like, I need to hear that shit so I know that I can prepare and be ready for it when it comes. And I fucking killed it. It was amazing. I love Las Vegas. So I think that was the only thing. Yeah. How did the headline tours come together? And how did you know you were at a point where you would be able to pull them off? So I was 
I was not trying to do a headline tour. Like, the one thing I'm so prideful in is, like, I don't want to do it if there's no kids that show up because, like, I just, I'm going to feel, like, a failure. And I, I had to get out of that mindset because David was like, listen, we have to build you up with this headlining tour because we need to prove to promoters that you can sell tickets so, like, you can get billed for festivals. Like, he was like, trust me, it's a whole process. And, like, even though if only two people show up to your show, it's like, at least we can say we did it. And I was just like, okay, David, again, okay, you know what's best in my favor. And I am so glad I did it. Because, like, it really made me realize, like, yeah, I am fit for DJing. Yeah, I can't believe these kids are paying to fucking meet me at my meet and greets. And, like, like I said, because I've been on the internet since I was 16, like, kids are just, they just want to meet me to say, like, yo, I've been seeing you on Tumblr since you were 16. It's so crazy to see your growth. And it's just, like, they fall in love with, like, my personality versus my persona as noodles. Like, they actually really like Micah. So, like, I think... The headlining tour was also another reality wake up call because I was shook. Like I sold out a bunch of my shows on that tour and I was just like, what the fuck? It was so crazy. And would I do it again? One thousand fucking percent. I think I was really supposed to do it again later this year, but obviously COVID happened. So we have to push it back. But I would definitely. Yeah, love it. What is the sort of format of those shows like? Because I'm guessing because you've got a young audience, it's not like club times and stuff. What what are those shows like? Um, Bunch of young kids because like it's all ages and they stem from like people who are like my age who just saw me grow up like at the same time they were on the internet, you know? And what was cool about the Sayonara tours was like, nightclubs would want to book me for the after party after so it was like holy shit I get to do a venue show with the all ages crew and then I can play an after party for my older crowd of friends and or just fans and it was really freaking cool because I was like I didn't know that was possible to be booked as twice as a DJ in one night and it really tested my limits to really see like if I was really cutthroat for it but yeah it was a bunch of young kids those were the ones who were really paying for the meet and greet. Some of them showed up with their moms. It was so cute. And I was super welcoming with the moms. Like, you are so cool for coming to a show like this because what? Like, I couldn't go to a show when I was, like, 16 like that. I mean, I could, but I was sneaking out, you know? But, um, <laughs> yeah, it was it was cute. I loved it. What kind of sets were you playing for the actual shows? It was a mixture from, like, R&B to like future based selection stuff and I would always end it on like a high energy note with like playing strictly bangers for like the last 15 minutes where everyone's just dancing in the crowd going crazy you know that was pretty much the format so like I would start off like very like slow that's like the selection stuff and then it would pick up with the R&B stuff so then it would get people in a groove and then like I would end it with like hip-hop bangers and kids are just going crazy, yeah. How did it affect you as a creative kind of meeting these these young kids who really look up to what you do? It really inspired me to keep going. Trust me, like, I've gone back and forth, like, do I want to DJ for the rest of my life? I want to have kids now, like, this and that. But, like, seeing and meeting these these kids, it's just like, oh, my God. Like, I can't believe the word influencer, like, I can't believe, I guess I fall under that route, even though I fucking hate that word. But like, just hearing these kids be like, you inspired me to DJ, like, you inspired me to be this Asian American that had to break the norm being a nurse with like my career, like, I want to pursue DJing now because of you. And honestly, it's so refreshing to hear because then it makes me realize like, oh, I cannot stop this. Like, I truthfully love DJing. This is the only way. So yeah, it's really cute. What's the most difficult thing that you've had to overcome in your career so far? I think saving money, like in the beginning, cause I wasn't used to making like the corporate gig money. I was blowing it left and right. So like I had to learn the hard way cause oh, trust me, I have like expensive taste. But now I like understand now that I have a business manager, how to manage my money. Cause he gives me like a spend a weekly spending allowance. And I used to blow it left and right. I used to be like, oh yeah, designer shit. Yeah, I'm going to make this again next month. But then I realized when I would get down back to like the bracket of 
why I was not trying to be broke like that in the first place. I had to learn the hard way. So I think everyone goes through that phase of when they finally get a real check, they had to blow it to realize like that's not how you're supposed to live and sustain your money. So I think that was the difficult time was like having to learn that the hard way. Yeah. (laughs) What are you most proud of about what you've achieved so far? I'm just proud of having the freedom to be able to do this every day. Um, I feel like I'm still learning as I go, but my most proudest moment would have to be my headlining tour and my Vegas residency. Just because those were, I feel like those are such DJ goals that I really wanted to accomplish and I was able to do it before I hit 30 and I can't wait to build it up again and do it again next year. (laughs) Perfect. And lastly, what does success look like to you? Success is basically being comfortable in your own skin and being proud of who you are and not being scared to showcase yourself to the world. And I also think success is being able to make your parents and loved ones proud. Doesn't have to be money related. It's just something where people are so excited to just like especially I I owe my whole life to my parents like I love them so much and it's cool like I feel like my dad thanks me all the time because he's like you get to live my dream of what I wanted to do and being able to see you perform it's that most satisfying feeling is hearing that from your parents so that's I always push it on my followers like finish school make your parents proud and also just you know do whatever it takes for yourself to be happy think that's success thank you for listening to making conversation with grant bryden featuring noodles if you like this episode then please be sure to rate comment and subscribe wherever you're listening to podcasts you can find noodles on socials at nudes n-o-o-d-z and check out her streams via twitch you can find me on social media at grant bryden